0: This is the Multiracial Identity Podcast. I'm Robert Cox. Welcome to episode four. So, uh... When I first started this podcast, I got an email from a listener. It was a gentleman, a multiracial gentleman, about my age, who had some very insightful things to say about what he had heard so far and about what the multiracial identity podcast could could be, what the potential of it. And one of the things that came up was about balancing. Uh, advocacy for the multiracial identity, which is obviously a big motivation for this podcast, and just one of the reasons why it exists, is for the advocacy uh, of to make multiracial official, as I say in my little my little tagline. But um, and so one of the things that came up was about how to balance the advocacy for the multiracial identity with more personal stories about what it's like to be a multiracial person in america in 2024 so as we get into the new year i'm looking forward to having guests join me to talk about what their multiracial identity means to them and about some of the stuff that we've been going through as a community good and bad you know so i'm really looking forward to that and actually one of the first guests that i will be having on is my son, Christopher. He's my wife's kid. He's my stepson. And his multiracial heritage is pretty amazing. It, it includes Native American, Chinese, Scottish-Irish, and in his birth father's family, he hails from Portugal. So he's got an amazing multiracial heritage. And on top of that, he's a kid who's really had an uncommonly integrated upbringing. You know, I've... I've mentioned this before and we've talked about a little bit before some multiracial people for whatever reason unfortunately don't always have access to all of their racial heritages Uh, it can and it can affect a multiracial person's not just racial development but their perspective on themselves and their lives it's it's really it's more than just you know that aspect of our our identity where we're developing our racial identity. it's 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 about our world view as well. And, and and I have to say Christopher's worldview is pretty cool. His perspective is pretty neat. So and the other thing about Christopher is that he's 12 years old. and as I've talked about, according as I've also talked about you know, before at length, according to the 2020 census numbers, 12 is the average age of the multiracial population in America. and, and that makes us the youngest racial group uh, as of the last census. So and that's one of the reasons why I'm always saying that multiracial people are the future. We're an important part of the future of this country because I'm a 55. I, I'm a Gen Xer, Gen Xer, and I'm aging along with the boomers who, you know, this isn't going to be our world the bulk of the multiracial people in America are part of Christopher's generation. And we should be talking about what that means and about that and, and the impact of that for the future. And, and not just for the future of race relations in America, but for the future of America and coming together and working together for climate change. And it, what, Will that have the impact? Can, can, can remembering those numbers of 100 million people by 2060. So we could have an impact so as we head into 2024 for me and i mean it's obvious the fight to make multi the multiracial identity official is even more urgent than ever and christopher and his generation i mean they could change the world but only if they're seen and that decision coming this summer that we've talked about before from the office of management and budget about whether multiracial with a capital m will be recognized that it's historic for the future of the multiracial community. It's historic for Christopher's generation. It's 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 um, it's it's a big deal. So in many ways, it's as historic as the last time that that infamous Directive Fifteen, that list of the recognized racial groups in America, that we've mentioned before, we talked about before. It, it's it's the, it's as it's important as the last time that it was reviewed and modified. So I decided that before we go on with other guests, that we should wrap up our talk with Susan Graham of Project Race about the advocacy for the multiracial identity. And I thought it was important to finish the story we've been following from the beginnings of that advocacy leading up to the 2000 census because basically it's happening again right now. And so in 2020, just just in 2020, the chief statistician of the United States of America announced that the Directive 15 should be updated. And that basically tasked the Office of the Management and Budget to do what it did in the late 90s. And that's basically what we've been breaking down with the, with the hearings and the you know, consulting academics and that National Advisory Committee of academics and whatever. And, and then the interested parties or the stakeholders, as they call them, which is the, one of which is the multiracial community, and to seek public comment on the proposed changes of the directive 15 list of racial groups and that's how i met susan graham of project race when she online she sent out a call for people to talk to the office of management working group on race and ethnicity on a zoom call and just talk about what this meant to us and and the impact of it for for us and several people did a great job showed up and did a great job for that not sure how much it mattered, but we showed up for the public calls. And thanks to Project, to Susan and Project Race, and their their allies staying on the OMB's case, there was supposed to be a possibility that multiracial would be added to the Directive 15 list. It, it's the 2030 census. It's so much more about it. Ripples through the government. It, it's making multiracial... I did the multiracial identity official, but recently Susan Graham has been reporting uh, that it doesn't look good, and with the the OMB wasn't even contacting her and and engaging with her the last time I talked to her, so I want to get an update from her about it. But she she it wasn't looking good, you know. Meanwhile, and this this demonstrates, and I've, I've written about this, but uh, this demonstrates. The, the, the dysfunction of this this process because there's people fighting for to add a Middle Eastern slash North African classification to the Directive 15 list and, and they might have a good shot this round. And, and that just highlights how unbelievable this is because they've been fighting for longer than the most racial rights movement has. Longer than Susan Graham and Project Race have been you know, going after them and staying on them. And it's just ridiculous that they're, that, that the, a Middle Eastern or, or North African person, their only option up until this day, to, today, would be to pick white or some other race when declaring their racial heritage. And actually what it is is discrimination. And it's discrimination for that racial group. It's discrimination for multiracial people as well. So there's something really important to remember I'm paraphrasing it here. I don't have the quote directly in front of me, but basically, we got to remember this as we go forward. And and that is that it's from the Office of Management, uh, Office of Management and Budget's website, the OMB's website. It's the White House, it's an executive branch agency. And basically, what they say on the website is that their purpose is to fulfill something called the president's vision across the executive branch, is basically what they say. And so it's a, it was a very specific thing that they work, obviously, at the pleasure of the president, as it likes to say back in the ridiculous term. But, I mean, that that is a very telling thing that they they state as, as their purpose. So, because, needless to say, it hasn't been very any president's vision to make multiracial official. To this today, you know, up till today, including the first multiracial president, Barack Obama. So, but the key here is it should be very concerning to just a bit to everyone on and off the Directive 15 list that the president, whoever that president may be, whoever that person is, the exec and the executive branch, they have such control over what is basically a civil rights issue, and that's the recognition of a racial group in America. That's not a bureaucratic issue. That's not a. That is a civil rights issue to its core. That's our our racial identities. So, if you think about it, I mean, really, today it's multiracial people and other people being deprived admission to that exclusive list of Directive Fifteen, except you know recognized racial groups. Tomorrow, a Trump wannabe could decide that. Black or African-American, one of the classifications on that list, should just be removed from it. Now, what exactly is going to stop them? There'll be an uproar, but bureaucratically, I haven't heard anything that would stop him from doing, or her, or they, from doing that. So, as we advance... And, 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 and we go forward, and as we advocate to be seen and recognized by the United States government, we must also indict and enforce reform of a system that is really the epitome of racial discrimination. When you do just ignore somebody and their identity and their racial identity, and you just say they don't exist for decades. That's multiracial identity. Apparently, that's being uh, Middle Eastern and North African. It's shocking. So in my conversation with Susan Graham, we and I just wrap up my talk with her over the talks that we had. It it was about not just advocacy for multiracial rights movement, but advocacy in general. And she in this in this conversation we're going to jump into and you're going to listen to, she gets into how a movement gets started on the local level and something she calls bubble up. And so that it you know that can lead to real change in government whether it's on a on a a county level or a federal government or or federal level and we know one of their victories was the 20 the 2000 census where we were finally counted and it's just you know i've gone on and on about the importance of that so i won't go into it again but vitally important and so now we've got to go the next step so Obviously, grassroots is the key, of course, and Susan's incredible tenaciousness of just not giving up. So I asked her, you know, how did this get started? What would you say to somebody who wants to start advocacy for something, who wants to get involved with the multiracial rights advocacy? Where would you begin? How did you begin? And this is what she had to say.
1: Well... In 1990, just to go back for a minute, uh, I realized that my son was identified as white on the U.S. Census, black at school, and multiracial at home. So I want to go through an example of what it's like to go through legis- getting legislation on a state level, because that's where we started. We started with our schools, and we went up to the states, and that's how we got to Washington. So, Ohio was our first piece of legislation um in nineteen ninety two and that gave us a great start because uh Speaker of the House Bill Mallory was the perfect person to carry our legislation at the state level. Uh, if you're the Speaker of the House, you're going to get it done uh sometimes not at the national level as we know lately, but um, on the state level, that's a good place to be and I lived in Atlanta then, and I tried to to bring state legislature there. Um, as Robert said, too, this is kind of a, a blueprint for advocates for any cause. You know, you look at your cause and you think, okay, where do I get started? And we got started after Ohio, uh, which kind of happened with or without us, it was going to happen. We decided to go to Georgia in Fulton County and try to get the attention of the school systems uh, parent teacher association and we were advised when we started looking around to get the attention of the PTA and if you think the PTA is a group of women merely cooking for bake sales you couldn't be more wrong because there are course who are legislative advocates The PTA members then introduced me to a man named Tom Keating, who was a lobbyist for education. And you want to find out if there's that kind of lobbyist within your system, within your state. And I would sit in the balcony in the legislature next to Tom Keating while he explained everything that was going on, why bills ran into trouble and what saved other bills. It was a real education, believe me. Um, he introduced me to a state senator, as did the PTA, named Sally Newbill, who was multiracial. She was white and a Native American. And they thought she might be willing to carry our bill in the Senate. Um, They knew that Senator Newbill would be giving a speech soon and invited me to go there with them. Um, I'll kind of never forget the senator walking into the room lugging huge bags with her. And she poured out hundreds of letters and said, this is how the public makes the difference in legislation, by writing to their lawmakers. And nothing could be further from the, could be more truthful than that. Uh, I've seen it over and over again at the state level and at the national level. Uh, OMB, who we've been fighting for 30 years, will come out in a Federal Register notice and ask people to write letters. So everyone has a, an opportunity to weigh in on this through letter writing, and it's very important. Of course, now we have email, which makes it easier, uh, in some ways. By the way, the U.S. President does not accept email. Uh, um, but individual letters are good too. Uh, you can write to the OMB, uh, you can get all the information on the Project Grace website at, uh, www.projectgrace.com and you can get everything you need there.
2: Um, well, there's, there's no replacement for, you know, for, well, I, I guess what so they say, they're not going to pay attention unless they feel like a significant portion of the population is, is paying attention to what's going right. on.
1: Right. And it's a, it's a problem. I mean, people will agree with us but then not do anything. So it's very important that people get involved and and do the letter writing and do the phone calling and uh, do anything that's needed because just wanting it is not going to make it happen. You have to do something.
2: Well, we'll continue discussing that advocacy and what they can do. And like you say, ProjectGrace.com is a great place to start for the multiracial rights advocacy as well because it's one thing to talk about. As you are saying, it's another thing to put that talk into action. And so that's one of the things we want to do with this the, this podcast is to hopefully not just have a conversation, have that conversation translate into real political action, or at least create a the community so that we can get their attention. Like right. you say, if they go, "Oh well, ten thousand multiracial people said blah blah blah," you know, some politicians is going to
1: pay attention for sure. Hopefully. Hopefully There's not much going <laughs> on. There's not much going on in Washington at the moment, but uh, we'll have to see what what is good timing and when we can do it. So, uh, and that but, would be true anyway. for
2: any any kind of cause. It's it's kind of the same. That's what your point is. It's kind of the same process, really, for just about any anything that somebody's advocating advocating for.
1: Right. The the first thing. Have. The first thing you have to do is get a sponsor for your legislation. And that's where, you know, working your contacts, working with the PTA, working with legislative consultants, that's where all that happens. And you can't be shy. You have to be willing to pick up the phone and make a phone call or stop somebody in the halls of the Capitol and talk with them and and just get it done. Hmm. So that night uh, after her convincing speech uh, to the PTA, uh, they introduced me to Senator Newbill, and she listened very carefully to what we were trying to do for multiracial children in our schools. And she said, I'm completely with you, but I'm not the right person to handle this for you. You need Senator Abernathy. Which really surprised me because I thought that she was going to offer to handle it for us, but she uh, told us Senator Abernathy would be our best bet. And she was right. She was absolutely right. Uh, she was talking about Senator Ralph David Abernathy III, the son of the great civil rights leader who marched with Martin Luther King. And I called his office and talked to him. And here again, I want you to hear what I said. I called mm-hmm. his office and I asked to speak with him. And he got on the phone. It was as easy as that. <laughs> wow. People say to me, you know, how did you get through Ralph David Abernathy? You know, he's somebody important. And, well, yeah. I'm just as important on the other end of the line for multiracial children. That's we had a lot long- Yeah. We had a long talk, and he told me he had multiracial children in his family and would in fact sponsor our bill. Uh, You brought up about my uh, book, Born Biracial. There are many amusing stories in my book about my years with Ralph David. Georgia only has a 40-day legislative session each year, so it took three years to pass our bill, but we did it. So For 40 days out of every year, we were back there. We were back there again, and they couldn't get rid of us. So by 1997, we had legislation for multiracial children in seven states. In Ohio, Georgia, Illinois, um, Indiana, Florida, North Carolina, and Michigan. And we were able to take our seven bills to Washington to show them our progress, which made a huge difference and really prove that the bubble-up theory can work, because that's how we did it.
2: Well, it really can, and um, it also shows, when, when, you, when you talk about that, that short legislative session in Georgia, it kind of demonstrates how each state can be so different. Because I know that's not the case here in Colorado, however it's set up, but learning the ins and outs of your particular state and how it works was something that was really pointed out to me from your experience and that it will vary, and getting the gist of how of how that's working in your particular state is an important part of going forward, obviously, but, I mean, just how different it can be, you know, from state to state, and you think it would be, oh, this is pretty standard, right? No, they operate differently. Learn what your state's doing and learn the gist of it, and that could be a big, big help. It was for you, clearly, and it helps you make connections in the right places as well. And then just being tenacious came back three years in a row for only 40 days to get something done. That's, that's something. That's, that's right. a major, really great victory on the local level. With that, it was probably easier in other states because of, you know, the way they're set up there. Obviously it was in Ohio, but you had real clout there too. So.
1: Right. Once you get a sponsor, the sponsor's legislative team will, you know, kind of guide you through. But it's getting that sponsor oh. that's first and, you know, most important.
2: So and when they when Georgia, they when they chip in and say they're going to do it, then then they can they will help you and contact you, obviously, because well, his politicians are, is online and and so you start getting some right. help from that from that those quarters then. If you right, can get that and sponsor, they, they right. set
1: up committee. They set up committee hearings and tell you, you know, where to be when, and they're very helpful. So it's good to be nice to them. Yeah. And in Georgia, the, uh, Georgia legislation was very important to us because my congressional representative was Congressman Newt Gingrich. And he would become the influential Speaker of the House while we were lobbying in Washington. And I had to wait two years to get a meeting with House Speaker Gingrich. And I took a lot of people who didn't, who did not not like Speaker Gingrich, but my reply was that we danced with anyone who signed our dance card as long as they supported our issue. I didn't care if they were Democrats or Republicans or whatever. Um, as long as they supported us, we welcomed them.
2: Well, and You never know what, what quarter you will get support from. so you have No burning bridges, for sure.
1: For right. sure in this situation.
2: Right. You know, once and for all kind of thing. You never they could come back and say, no, actually I think you're right. And I will support it. You just never know. Well, you know, and that was to say he ended up getting well-known nationally, but he was just your representative in Georgia, was he not? He was.
1: He was. He was my representative. And that's who you go to when you need help in Washington. You go to your congressional representative, and Newt Gingrich happened to be my representative. So we got lucky, and he uh came out and, and well, he was going to, uh talk at a hearing about the importance of the multiracial classification but uh he was busy shutting down the government or <laughs> they were deciding at that point <laughs> back then yeah just like we they're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um but he did uh put in a, a written statement which is part of the, the record, the congressional record. Um so that helps a lot.
2: Well it really does, you know my, my rep is Jason Crow and And he did. I I contacted him, and I haven't heard back. And I, and from what I understood, he was required to give me a response if I sent him some kind of question. So I didn't hear back.
1: Is he a congressional uh, representative or
2: your state legislature? Oh, he's he's the congressional representative. Okay. Now the state legislature one, honestly, I'm not familiar with, and I should get more familiar because that's a whole other system working just here in Colorado correct, the state's legislature, and then you have your national representative and kind of getting that correct. straight through and who can do what and, and who can get what done, right. what particular thing done that you want. And it,
1: well. it helps to, to kind of work these different branches of government at the same time. And it's also important to uh, work your school system at the same time. Uh, when we were working with Fulton County, Georgia, to add multiracial to the school forms, here again, I called the school superintendent. He came to the phone. I talked to him and got his agreement to add our category. It was that easy as making a phone call. And the next day, the school system uh, forms had multiracial on them. But, and
2: they to so this day, as you confirm.
1: They, they do. They do. I talked to them recently, and they confirmed that they, they still have multiracial on the school forms so um it's it's kind of uh tricky as to you know what takes precedent is it the school is it the state is it the national uh people it, it's not always clear right now uh director fifteen is what is uh presiding in the national level, and a lot of school systems will say well we're doing what we're supposed to be doing we're following Directive 15 and, and the, the national outlook on this. And they won't do it, you know, they won't go by the state legislature. So Can it's good to, have, to have yourself completely
2: covered. Well, you heard that from an Ivy League school recently, didn't you? That Was it Harvard or I heard, one of
1: those? It was MIT. MIT. They said that they, they couldn't add the multiracial category because it didn't jive with, Directive 15 in the Department of U- U.S. Department of Education,
2: and that's and incorrect.
1: That's That'd really incorrect. Yeah, right. But the U.S. Department of Education is not easy to deal with. They have their own way of doing things, and that's how it's going to be until somebody, you know, hopefully, changes it.
2: And they're and faithfully not, following Directive 15 that they didn't write themselves, correct? Right. Right. So we'll just let's reiterate about that. We talked about that a little long. this. It's an important aspect of the, the multiracial identity podcast, and that is Directive 15. And just to reiterate, it is a directive that was laid down initially in 1977 and then updated in 1997. And they basically established the races that were going to exist or be rec- be officially recognized in America. And so, with a to, to, long story short, multiracial. Is not on that list, and so we've been discussing and dealing with the implications of that. And so your efforts to get that change—that's you, you, why you were talking about the bubble up situation, where you—that's where you're leading to a national change of Directive 15. But it had to start in Fulton County, basically, right. even if they were, you know. But but that's an example of well, they didn't care about Directive 15, or they knew maybe they knew how it really worked. And that is that, as you pointed out, it's a minimum. It's not the maximum right. or the only thing. You can add to it, and Fulton had to do Absolutely. Yeah,
1: Directive 15 gives the minimum racial categories, and then you can add to that. So,
2: but MIT but, chose you know, not to. They, right. But I'll tell yeah. you,
1: what really made a difference for me is that um, in 1990, when my son filled out his paperwork to go to kindergarten, there wasn't a place for him under racial classifications. And four years later, when his younger sister was ready to go to kindergarten at the same school, she was able to check that she was multiracial, and that was very meaningful for our family.
2: Well, that was a victory. Was that that first, and it wasn't a small victory. That was a large victory on on the grassroots level that you carried for thirty years, and and why shouldn't you? Because it was actually the beginnings of what we're actually going to talk about, and and that's the lead up to the two thousand census and something that, you know, a major change that you were able and directly involved in, in 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 making for the multiracial community, and it started with that victory in Fulton County, without a doubt. Right. I mean, it just shows how it can happen, how important your local efforts can be. They're the key. They're the start. They're the first building block.
1: Right. And another way that you can get involved is um, we went to the media, and we progressed so successfully because we used the media. It was a new and interesting story. It wasn't, people didn't know what the multiracial classification was, so it was something new and interesting. And the CBS news show, 48 Hours, came up to our home and did a story on the state legislation with my family and with Ralph David the III. The New Yorker did a major piece on us, uh, U.S. News and World Report. We were on CNN, ABC, NBC, uh, shows like Jesse Jackson's political talk show. Uh, we were all over the place in the 1990s. You couldn't open a newspaper without seeing something about us. As a matter of fact, we were coming, uh, my, my son testified one of the times he testified. We were coming back from Washington D.C. to Atlanta. And we were, had a little wait at the airport and some gentleman had, was reading the newspaper. I think it was USA Today and, and the, the New Yorker or the New York Times, I'm sorry. And he was reading the newspapers and he set them down when he left and I picked up one of the newspapers and on page two there was a story about my son. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were kind of all over the place. And my son uh, happened to grow up to look almost exactly like Tiger Woods, and that made, even made the story more interesting. Um, ESPN even did a story. There were also negative stories that came out in the press, and we'll talk about those a little bit later.
2: But um, Well, what, what angle were they going to want? What angle was interesting to them? What angle was going to trip their trigger? If you can find that about your particular cause... You have to work the media. It's basically what you're saying, and 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 you had a chance to do that with all these different reasons. With you know the young, the youngest person ever to give testimony in front of the Congress was your son. So and then like you said in the book too, and born biracial, you were talking about all these different angles that they were working, and it and that's what blew it up and really helped. And and just understanding that's how they operate, and they're looking for an angle. The press, the media. And if you can give them an angle, then you can get some print. You can get some airtime. You can get some some clicks, as they say. It's right. So I've but it is what it is, for sure. And
1: you have to you have to understand too that every state is different, and every school is different. They're all different. You have to kind of get in there and figure out what's what. Um We knew that in California, we really needed to get a, a state legislation passed and um, we we really worked tirelessly, and I found out that there was a cord blood bill pending which affected multiracial babies. We talked about that in the medical section of the podcast. And I called the Office of Assembly Member Anthony Portantino, who was carrying that bill, and I told him that Project Race was supported his bill, and Project Race was getting well-known around the legislature, so that made a difference I spoke to his legislative director to make sure that she she knew, and we ended up having a long talk. She had a multiracial grandson and wanted Anthony Portantino to carry our bill, and he agreed immediately. By lending our support to their bill, they ended up supporting our bill and sponsoring our bill. So you've got to kind of work the system like that.
2: Well, I mean, and the cord blood be the match is something that we discussed before with the donation of stem cells and of bone marrow. And the cord blood thing is an important issue to the multiracial community as well. So it was it was definitely synergy, I and mean, you can find those little synergy situations, I'm sure. I mean, just exploit them as much as you can or at least make the most exactly. of
1: them. Exactly. Now, cool. we didn't... Not everything worked out, and I want to talk a little bit about things that didn't work out. Um, we w- we yes. really worked our bill in California, and California was important to us. We passed every um, hearing that they had. We had absolutely no uh, nobody who was against it, and uh, when it came down to it, Governor Schwarzenegger vetoed our bill.
2: Yes, I wanted to point that out, that Arnold Schwarzenegger, after all those efforts in California, vetoed the bill to make multiracial with the capital M official in California. And what year was right. that, do you remember? It was I, in the 2000s? I or, yeah, I it, think it was, it was in the 2000s. It was in
1: the 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah.
2: yeah. Wow. That's so disappointing, considering they're the third, fourth largest economy in the world. they're they have, California has such influence. And they don't have to give
1: a reason for vetoing the bill. We never did find out exactly why, um, but we were it had something to do with opposition from the group AMIA and the California Department of Education, which was uh, apparently against the bill. So they don't really have to give you a reason, and we'll never really know why uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor, decided to veto it, but um, things like that happen. We had a, uh, when we were working in Georgia, we had a uh, Georgia senator call me. He tried to convince me that he could not pass, we could not pass legislation because there was already a law against what we were doing on the Georgia books. And we had a long conversation. We went back and forth, and he swore there was a law that prevented this. And he was wrong, and I finally convinced him to show us that law. I said, you know, we'll take that into consideration if you can show us that law. And I knew that none existed because we had done legal searches before. And he found out that there wasn't the law. So, he, he you know, you have to kind of, Yes. He did. Yeah, the one drop rule, which is the rule that if you have one drop of black blood, you should identify as black. And, and he
2: and he was assuming and thought uh, all along that that was a real law on the books in Georgia the one drop rule right it's right. just shocking to think that a, a legislator could assume something like that now look, just right quick and then go on with the one drop rule is is an actually a slave era dictate that would started in the south but it wasn't just restricted to the south where like you as you said if you We're determined to have even one drop of black blood, African-American blood, or Native was involved in that as well, Native blood, you were Native, or one drop of black blood, you were black. And it was a dictate that that was used to oppress multiracial people. It was a a tool of oppression and, and racism. And it right. sprung out of the South and sprung out of the slave era and was carried forward, obviously, even by people of color and often African American people who have this not the only individual I've heard stories of stating the one drop rule as if it were law or as if it were acceptable or as if it were something that isn't just completely abhorrent and racist and repressive. And so when you recounted that story in your book, you know, Born Biracial, I was I was shocked, but not surprised that the one-drop right. rule would still be assumed to be, even though it was codified in 1930 when they, you know, this U.S. Census stopped counting people of multi-racial backgrounds, essentially, and 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 just stopped recognizing us until 2000 and your victory in 2000. But but anyway, I just wanted we hadn't really discussed one drop and and its meaning so far. And so you know, I wanted to, to go ahead and lay that out so that people do understand exactly what that is and the implications of it when you hear that. It's actually an extremely racist and repressive thing from the slave days. It and is. so you were sitting talking to this, he was a senator, he said, and he was senator. convinced it was on the books in Georgia. So it's shocking right. but not surprising.
1: But look, um, somebody like Jesse Jackson, I was on his show, and we debated the one-drop rule. And he honestly still believed that there was a one-drop rule. I mean, this is a national figure, a national civil rights figure that we're talking about. And he got completely confused. He was talking about nationality, ethnicity, race. He got them all confused. He said to me, well, if my grandmother is from Russia... Does that make me multiracial? And I said, that's a nationality that has nothing to do with race. And I couldn't, I mean, I li- kind of laugh every time I see Jesse Jackson because it was so ridiculous. It was just a, a silly argument that he was trying to make yeah. um, about the one-drop rule. Well,
2: I thought, you anyway, know, Halle, years ago, Halle Berry said, just use the words one-drop. and that right. Well, there's a one-drop, and so uh, that's why my, my daughters are going to be black. And it was just an, a display of ignorance. It was just But anyway, I'm sorry. Absolutely go ahead and continue. Uh,
1: I was just going to say that as a result of our careful groundwork at the state level, we were ready to go to Washington. We had those seven states. We were working with the media. We were doing everything we were supposed to do. And Representative Sawyer guaranteed us that we'd be included in testifying at the first hearing. So they sent a formal invitation to me and to my son, Ryan, and we were on our way. So that's basically how we've spent our first seven years of advocating for multiracial children in America.
2: From state to state, on a local level, on a grassroots level, from PTAs to the legislature.
1: Right.
2: And you can see where that would be for just about any cause that somebody might have that's that's where it's gonna start and probably the path it's gonna take. If probably. you know if you can do the work right. and and lay down the base. And well it's an incredible story and like I say and like as we've mentioned it you really go into some amazing detail and then recount some really amazing and and head splittingly furiating stories in your book Born Biracial about all of these beginnings, about all of these efforts in California and in Georgia and Ohio bubbling up to your invitation for your son to be the youngest person to address the Congress at eight years old, which was amazing. right. Yep. Absolutely
1: we did it. I hope the people who are advocating for any good cause will kind of take these things into consideration and learn from what we did. Um, I hope it will help with other causes as well.
2: Well, I don't see how it couldn't, because uh, especially in your book, you obviously know how Washington works also so well from all those decades of experience, and so other groups and, and new groups and younger people need to benefit from that experience and should be able to benefit from that experience and, and go further, is the idea, is to take right. their cause, take the multiracial rights cause further with that information, with that experience, with that knowledge. And that's the only way we can do it. That's the only way we're going to be able to go forward in a lot of ways. And so we really appreciate you sharing that that information and and that experience. And we appreciate, we just appreciate hearing about all of that because that's the only way we're going to create a future is by seeing what happened before, especially when you're dealing with all of this political stuff because, oh, man, it's just amazing.
1: (laughs) <laughs> it's
2: just, You need somebody it's to help amazing. you. You guys are maze. It really is. And you got help, and you got people that told you how it worked. And so, yeah, appreciate you paying it forward. But where we're at now is the 2000 census. And a lot of what we've been talking about ends up being a lead up to the 2000 census because a lot of people may, may or may not know that in the 2000 census it was the first time that people of multi of multiracial backgrounds was able were able to pick more than one race. Now, twenty years later, twenty three years later, we kind of take that granted for granted a little bit. We do see two races or more in a lot of places. That's what we do here in Colorado is two races or more. But that kind that really happened because of Project Grace and Susan Graham and their allies and the efforts in the nineties leading up to the two thousand census to at least get to at least break the erasure that, that occurred that has happened in America for basically 70 years where a multiracial person could either pick white or black or African-American or Native American or Native Hawaiian or Alaskan or Alaska, you know, but they could not pick multiracial and they could not pick more than one. And if they did, that was, I think it would be bounce, and we'll talk about that. With, this background is important because where we're at now is in the 90s, And with Susan Graham's efforts to, one, was what the effort was, to get the multiracial identity recognized by the United States government. And what happened in 2000 was that we were able to pick to to race some more, and it was a huge victory. But it's not enough, and the fight hasn't stopped. We talked about your local efforts, and we kind of focused in on some of the things that you did to, to to bubble up, as you said, to get to the national stage and to get Nationalized and, and, and the national government to recognize the multiracial identity and after we're in the mid-90s or so and you're still fighting it out to get the multiracial identity recognized. But what came, what started coming out with all of the fighting with the Office of Management and Budgeting and everything was, well, two races or more. And so why don't we talk about that and and what was going on there and just what you were experiencing during that time as we were leading up and trying to get something on the census that recognized the multiracial identity. We'll put it that way.
1: Okay. Uh, And I just want to add that it's not just the U.S. census. It was all government forums, school forums, medical forums, any kind of forums that ask for race. So um, the census yeah, was definitely the whole was
2: leading up to the census, but it was right. everything. It would have been for the entire government, would have rippled through the entire government is what
1: basically That's right. It. So actually uh, now we're up to the mid-1990s and waiting, uh, waiting for the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, to make their decision. Uh, the hearings on race and ethnicity have concluded the National Advisory Committee, or NAC, has held all of its meetings, and we have seven states with legislation, and we're all just kind of sitting around waiting for OMB to make its final decision. Finally, they did. Uh, we learned that we will not get a true multiracial category, but we have won two very significant battles. First, we will have the ability to check two or more categories on the U.S. census and government forms, which we just talked about. This is a huge win for us, as we would no longer have to be under a check-only one mandate. Um, It was huge. Um, Secondly, and probably just as important, was the right to do away with observer designation or self-identification which is when someone else decides for you what race you are. Um, a lot of people don't know, most people don't know that um, in, say, the 1970s or 80s, if you went in to apply for a job, there was a uh, usually a, a race category, but uh, a secretary or an HR person filled it out, and you didn't even know that they, they were putting down your race because they were allowed to fill out race for you. We had a lot of uh, teachers and school administrators who would pick a race for a child and the parents and the child never knew. So uh, we got that changed and that was huge. Um, there's a provision in that stipulation for people who refuse to choose for themselves in which case a third party can make the choice. So if you absolutely refuse someone else is going to do it anyway, but we get first choice of uh, putting down what our race is and how we had self-identify. So, um, it worked for us and we were almost content with the way things worked out. Um, we celebrated, but there's still much more work to be done. Some of the uh, organizations didn't feel that um, anything else needed to be done and they folded like AMIA. But um, we're, we, we've not been able to make it a choice for, to use the correct terminology of multiracial. We we're still called, uh, mooms for Mark One or More, or as Robert said, two or more races peoples, and, um, or the infamous combination people. So we decided to not be complacent and to continue our work to get the ability to be called a respectful terminology of multiracial. Uh, it, I'll go back a, one step It's very complicated when it comes to filling out race forms in some states for example they use the state laws and in others they use federal directive 15 directions so you never really know depending on what state you're going into what they're going to use um, for example when this new school year began I called the Department of Education for Fulton County Georgia which was one of our first states where we had legislation. And I found that they still go by state law. So you could be multiracial in school forms in Georgia, but not in all states. Some states decided that they wanted to only use Directive fifteen. Well, um, that's that's kind of an important
2: point good point because I mean it was such a huge victory to, to be able to mark more than one. And and I, I noticed in one of those hearings that you talked about, the one that went on in ninety seven they felt they considered it was it was a, uh, a concession or or you know, a, some kind of fair negotiation, and you stood up and said, "Well, I don't know who was supposed to be a concession from or you know negotiate with because you got you weren't involved in that. You didn't consider it a, a fair kind of compromise. It, it, right. it, they were they were they weren't you know, and and so they really are kind of in a way weren't dealing in good faith with that. And as you said by that hearing that I'm talking about in the, the House. Government Oversight, Reform Oversight Committee, in 97, you felt like the decision had really had already been made. And they were just kind of, it was kind of performative. And you could kind of see that, too, considering they considered a compromise between parties, but you didn't consider, you weren't consulted on it. <laughs> so right. considering All right. the multiracial people you represented, it wasn't really a compromise between a large amount of multiracial people and the government. But they, just because they said that it was, well, all of a sudden, I guess. But that's the thing that's significant, too, that you pointed out, is that not only were we able to declare ourselves more than one, but that people, that it restricted the ability of other people to tell us what we were. And that was really right. a huge victory as well because, as we've discussed in the previous episodes, that is just mind-numbingly unfair and, and, and just seemed like a really step stomp on my civil rights. My racial civil rights or somebody to dictate who and what I am. So that was huge, the observer designation thing, to just not go away, but to definitely be called out and restricted was another big part, of, and more than just to be able to pick more than two The more. Let's talk about that because, because, let's just say, I mean, I'm going to post an article about the Pew Research discussing the history of the census. And, of course, like you say, once you, once you what the census uses, definitely the ripple, Throughout the government or vice versa, I mean that, it, they they kind of set the tone for what everybody else is really going to do. And in 1930, and I'll post this article because Pew discussed the history of it. How in 1930, they basically and they quote the the, the term what they told the census enumerators who were going, who basically still at that point were telling people what race they were, and people didn't realize right. until up to 1960 you couldn't pick your own race even even one. And census enumerators told you what your race was, no matter who you were. And so people don't realize that in 1930, for multiracial people, census enumerators were, ter- were told to return all black or African-American people as black, regardless of the amount of white blood that they had, essentially, you know, as paraphrase it. And so right. with that act of, of instructing those enumerators, multiracial people were disappeared. And at least even up to that point, we may have gone by mulatto or octoroon or quadroon, but we were counted. But people don't realize after 1930, until this victory in 2000, we weren't technically counted by the United States Census. And however much the, a lot of the, uh, school districts and whatever, especially in the 70s, tried to accommodate multiracial people because they were, started seeing multiracial kids everywhere, they had to do something. The United States government didn't act and, didn't act until you made them in 2000, <laughs> which was – so that's the, the the importance and the weight of this victory. It's his, It was historic.
1: Right. But it also it was. wasn't enough.
2: But it also wasn't enough, huh? And so I no, – yeah, talk about that. It, yeah, it wasn't – because it I didn't mean, codify the military racial identity, technically. We
1: Correct. had to force OMB. They had to do something because we were on the side of, you know, forcing them to do something, take some kind of action so they did you know kind of the least that they had to do but they were big victories for us but um i'd like to go back a minute and talk about the terminology that was kind of thrown around at the uh hearings because the terminology is so important so i want people to really understand what we're talking about okay. um, when major marvin arnold testified in washington i think it was the first or second hearing he said this quote Zebra, half-breed, Oreo, mixed, and a new term, trail mix. These are some of the names people choose to identify children like mine and others like them, unquote. And that hit pretty hard. Um, multiracial children are constantly being reminded that they have no uh, official racial identity. So um, that's what we set out to change. And even and then
2: so we'll point out, even to this day, uh, 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 past that victory of two races or more, we're still considered two races or more people, like you say, or Tomer, or a combination of people. There still isn't, I'm a multiracial man, capital M. It's still not right. recognized by the United States government to this day. And that's the work that needs to be done still.
1: Right. And we get asked very often what's wrong with the term mixed race because a lot of people use it. And we prefer not to use it because it lends its, itself to things like mixed up kids, mixed nuts, um, etc. There yeah. are whole races, right. not just mixed parts of races. Yeah. I started thinking about it one day and why I dislike mixed so much. And I realized that mixed is the opposite of pure. And I don't think we want to divide, our, divide ourselves into a mixed and pure society. I certainly don't. And you can make that choice for yourselves. So it has that implication, without a doubt. It has that connotation right right off. The the important thing is that we have terminology that's respectful, correct, and dignifying. Dignified leading up to the 2000 census, and the Census Bureau was acknowledging that people could check more than one race. So that was extremely important, and a lot of those... uh, terms that I use that uh my major Marvin Arnold used, zebra and half breed and mir- Oreo, those have pretty much gone away. Um not completely, but uh and we don't know what people use in their own homes or their own schools, but um pretty much like in the um uh, uh, media uh pretty much has gone away.
2: So, um, well, thanks to your efforts, like you say, the uh, AAP, the Associated Press, and right. other media groups have agreed to use. Well, the New York Times and some of those have actually been complying more than other groups in terms of at least using multiracial with a small m. Or I mean, just saw something that you sent to me from the National Institutes of Health that was multiracial American capital M capital A, and it's like, wow, right. okay. And it was in an article talking about terminology and and how to to use it. So that this was great to see. It was heartening. But well, and that's the thing that yeah. we're basically talking about is it comes from the top. And and until which is this is what's going on right now. And we'll be discussing more. It's about post 2000 and the work that needs to be done and the decision in uh, next summer in 2024 about this. But. That that just emphasizes the importance of the multiracial identity being recognized and being put on Directive 15. Here we're back to that, that key issue, yet again, that needs to occur.
1: Right. So, and, and that right.
2: shows the advocacy that needs to happen now, especially with the young kids, with everybody, with interracial couples who have multiracial kids who will be growing up over the next 30, 50, 60 years. They, they, they can't grow it mixed. That's for sure. They have to grow. It's multiracial, multiracial American,
1: right? right.
2: Clearly, and that's the work that's to be done. But we wouldn't even be here to this point if you hadn't, if you guys hadn't fought and dealt with so much leading up to the 2000 census. Because I remember when I was first able to do it, and it was in my 30s, and it was just, it really, it was amazing. I remember thinking about at that time, that's new, and that's something. But I didn't know about Project Race. I mean, a lot of people didn't. It's time to change that, too, because we have more to do, as you said. Right. So, yeah. Well, and you know, and I've talked about mixed and how it kind of sounds like, for, you know, because I'm part African-American, how that does sound like colored in a lot of ways to me. But it can't be mixed American with a capital M and a capital A. It, that just doesn't make sense. So I think pretty much whatever we say to each other or whatever, Multiracial American is is the multiracial identity that we, we have to see for the future. So what's well, the, where, where are we at? <laughs> <What's>, <laughs> well, okay. you know, consider well, leading up to 2000 and everything.
1: Yeah, we can't just leave it to the government. Um, I'm often reminded that uh, former President Ronald Reagan once said, the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here mm-hmm. to help.
2: Well, we're doing it to protect you. That's another one. And we're doing it for your safety. Right,
1: right. Well, that's
2: dangerous. <laughs> yes.
1: And things are, are still, you know, happening that show uh, that the government's not eager to uh, have a right, uh, hand in writing this wrong. I chose to fill, not to fill out my race for the 2000 census, even though we had the right to check more than one. I wanted to see what would happen and if they would send an enumerator out to my home. And they did. Um, the Census Bureau was sent to my home to help me, and I explained the dilemma to the enumerator, and I showed her pictures of my children, and I explained why um, I thought that we should be able to check multiracial or have that, you know, in the totals. And mm-hmm. she looked at me and said, "Oh, just do what I do and check other." It's really none of our business." And she was the enumerator sent out by the census.
2: So she really wasn't much help. Oh, no, not at all. So, but, and, and we talked about, you mentioned in the previous episode about eyeballing as well, I right. mean it was the episode before. Was she sent there to eyeball you even in 2000? Was that something that you think would have gone on if you had been resistant and then she would have walked away and clicked, oh, whatever she thought and then went on? So that uh, still,
1: absolutely! Yeah, yeah.
2: And that's if you absolutely refuse to respond whatsoever, then that does kick in.
1: Right, you. right. And then she would be able to do it. But um, in 1975, President Clinton said he favored having a multi-racial classification, but then
2: 19, he did
1: nothing to help. I think was 1995, 1995. I'm sorry. Um, so
2: we did, did get some attention from, from Clinton in 95.
1: Right. But then he really didn't do anything to help us out. He would uh, you know, send letters through, uh, like Newt Gingrich was a very big help, and he would engage people at OMB in, in discussions. And then we were thrilled when Barack Obama was elected, uh, we had our first multiracial president. But in fact, he had a negative effect when he identified as black on the census. One of my worst days was when newly elected President Obama called himself a mutt, and that yeah. just that just did it for me. I remember that. So, yeah, and that was around the time that uh, negative publicity started coming out. Um, we found ourselves in kind of an era of negative publicity. The Washington Post uh, published a story called Love in Black and White. And I want to read to you how it, it started. Families disown them. Friends shun them. Strangers taunt them. Many interracial couples must wage a painful fight to be accepted. And why should that be surprising? Well, I think that's I, horrible. And what was this now? <laughs> this is, is, is another this is going well, it was about nineteen ninety nine, somewhere in there, before the two
2: thousand. That is uh right. not surprising. Well that's what that's and I I touched on that in the introduction and we've mentioned that, the idea of the, the poor tragic mulatto. And how it's right. been a something that's been harped on by white, black, uh, uh probably Asian and because the mono race people would like to look down on multiracial people, and so the whole idea that all multiracial are tragic and don't fit in, in anywhere, and, and 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 just isn't that so sad and pathetic, is just unbelievably racist, particularly when it comes from people of color, and it often often does. So uh that and then then somebody sat down and typed that out and put it in an article and published it in it's the Washington not, Post.
1: Right. There were <coughs> publications like Ebony Magazine that we expected this kind of, you know, publication to use. Um, they carried a story by Kathleen Cross titled Trapped in the Body of a White Woman. And it was completely mm. negative against multiracial people. So you kind of get the picture of, uh, you know, we had this uh, newly found era that we were going to be able to check more than one. But still, some of the public uh, was still against us, and they would be against us, and some of them still are. So it's up to each and every one of us to fight this. Um, I was filling out a survey the other day, and the racial categories were uh black, white, Asian, you know, the regular categories, and other. And I wrote in and let them know that um, other was no longer acceptable, and they should do away with other and put in multiracial. So, you know, that's one person in one survey, but if everyone did that, we could really, you know, get a lot farther, a lot quicker. So um, it's it's everyone's responsibility.
2: We're 23 years after the 2002 races or more. 23 years. So you could basically say there's no excuse for the insensitivity to this, the misunderstanding of this. Not unless it's kind of willful. Or it's just thoughtless. Or it's just or there aren't uh regulations in place like what happened with that. And we're going to talk in a future episode about the some really serious uh discrimination cases against multiracial people and interracial couples and, and one of them was involved Southwest Airlines and here in Colorado. And uh, what I'm just saying is that there there should have been some kind of procedures in place to prevent whatever Southwest staff to hassle this white woman with her multiracial daughter. And if if our multiracial identity was in place, now, they may not have stopped it, but there definitely would have been, especially in international travel, some kind of – because there's some kind of, uh, what am I going to say, Uh, procedures in place on, on how to deal with this situation. And okay. that would happen if the multiracial identity was recognized. It's not going to happen with two races or more, unfortunately.
1: Right. And
2: there's your difference. And the people understand, well, what's the big deal? Well, it's two races or more. There's your difference. Two races or more is a racial classification and racial categories. Multiracial American or multiracial person is a, is a racial identity. And that's what we're fighting for. And that's what you've been fighting for since the very beginning.
1: For right. Sure. And interesting. it's interesting that a lot of the same people are still making those kinds of decisions. Um, Nicholas Jones is in charge of race and ethnicity at the Census Bureau. And he's been dodging us for years. And he'll occasionally uh talk with us, but not not usually. And uh, Was he there for the Owen. 2000
2: decision? Was he, does he go back that far?
1: He he goes back that far. Yes. That's been that entrenched
2: bureaucrat thing that a lot of the people on the right complain about, and and they're not wrong about that. There is an entrenched bureaucracy that prevents government from working, and it doesn't have anything to right. do with politics one way or the other. It's the bureaucracy that you've been fighting and wrestling with, of which Nicholas Jones has been there for 20-some-odd, 20 25 years?
1: That's Probably. shocking in a way. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that and, really is. You know,
1: he does some, you know, things occasionally, like we asked the Census Bureau to um, kind of advertise our Multiracial Heritage Week, and Nicholas agreed to do that. So they they do put that out there for us, but that's not really what we want. We want the term multiracial to be the term that people use and the term that we see on forums. And when I see a, a pie chart on the front page of USA Today and a story about race, I want to see that sliver of pie titled multiracial.
2: Exactly. That represents us. Well, and it will be 34-plus probably now, a million people. In that sliver, and it's not even so much of a sliver anymore, there was 46 million African American people as of 2000. So, right.
1: yeah, we have about we're, 10% of pie now. Yeah, uh,
2: we're
1: you know, about 10% of the pie.
2: Yeah. And we're growing so fast that they, they said with a tripling of population throughout the decades, that means a tripling, that means a, a big jump in population between now and 2030. It has to, to get to those numbers. It, right. we're not in an insignificant amount of, so certainly you could put the correct title of this racial identity on that pie chart for a change but I guess so to say it flows from the top and they won't do it and they, and with your experience talking to MIT is a perfect example they they look toward Directive 15 this Ivy League right. school that's supposed to be so intelligent but oh Directive 15 sorry there's nothing we can do so and we see where we're, we're at a-
1: these people at the Census Bureau and OMB and in the federal government, you know, if it doesn't affect their children, they just don't care. You know, they – the Department of Education, for example, put out a book called Managing an Identity Crisis to uh inform schools what to do with a, you know, multiracial category. And I always wondered who, whose crisis they were managing. Um, we weren't having a crisis. Mm -hmm. But um, the government handled it in several different ways. It's a crisis for them.
2: It was a crisis, apparently. And and apparently it was a crisis for these bureaucrats and statisticians who couldn't aggregate, as they say, which just means split us off into the correct category. And that just really, really is a problem for these individuals. And I guess the way they... The compromise was, it sounds like, between all these other entities and the statisticians to make that happen in 2000 because it wasn't what you were really fighting for, but it was huge. Right. And it broke 70 years of erasure, and it allowed us to declare who and what we were for the first time in generations and in my entire life and the entire life of a lot of people alive today. So thank you for doing that and your efforts, and thanks to Project Race and all your allies for what you did leading up to 2000 to make that happen. Now we need to take that next step, but we wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for your efforts. So we, we, right. I want to thank you for that, and then a lot to me too, and I know I meant a lot to millions of other multiracial people.
1: Without it, well, it's it's the children that I worry about and think about, and uh, the the teenagers now have to be the ones to carry it on. Um the twenty year olds have to carry it on and uh we'll we'll see what happens. We've still got work to do and we'll Yeah, two thousand was, was something big. Um I'm not sure that people realize how big it was, but um we just continue to fight the government and it takes them so long to do these kinds of things. I don't understand why it takes so long, but for example the um MENA category which is Middle Eastern, uh, North Northern African, is going to be uh, done for the 2030 census. Uh, we're That's almost positive. In, huh? that uh, awesome. Yeah, the MENA category is pretty locked in. We're almost positive. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. And
2: um, so, they but, started but their fight for four years. Did they not in the, in the 80s?
1: They worked for 40 years to try to get them in a MENA category. So you know, I, that I mentioned great. that to
2: a friend at work where I was like, well, you know, did you know that the that, Lutheran that, you know, and Arab people are classified as white in the census? He's like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, really? what? You tell people this stuff, and they're like, what?
1: That's, of course that's
2: absurd. But I guess absurd is part of the right. government bureaucracy. It's an absurd government bureaucracy, as you well know. Right. Yeah. And continue to fight, as a matter yeah. of fact. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you the for having me. Oh, you, oh, it's just such a pleasure to talk about all of this stuff. This is the beginnings, this is the now, and this is the future for multiracial rights. So it's a, I just want everybody to know and hear it.
0: So my great thanks to Susan Graham for being my first guest on the Multiracial Identity Podcast and for sharing her knowledge and her amazing experience and also for fighting for this to this day for the multiracial identity. And so we've established now, so we established that the OMB is working against us. It's been established just recently that the ACLU, for one, will not be helping us make multiracial official. And at this point, it's really easy to wonder, does the NAACP have a person dedicated to making sure multiracial is not included in this rate revamping of the Directive 15 that's going on right now? I, mean, What's going on behind the scenes? Or you, we need to know, and we need to force an answer. So clearly... It's long past time that we come together as a community and let the president and the OMB and the world know that not only are we here, but we vote, we spend money at places, and that we're demanding change to a system that is discriminatory and should be unconstitutional. So what do we do? Susan, Susan just laid out the bubble-up strategy, starting at the local level, and it really works. There are over two hundred and fifty thousand multiracial people in Colorado, but we still use the pick all that apply or the two races or more thing here. And I, I've got work to do here. I've contacted my my national rep, Jason Crow, but I wanna I'm gonna be following up with the state legislature about changing that to the multiracial with a capital M and then I will be discussing it in, in future podcasts and and how it works and how it goes. So, and so another another thing that I've discovered, and, and it's a really important, especially online. And but these are what they do is also in person, and that is joining local groups that are bringing multiracial people together and interracial couples together and building a community. And one that that uh, I've been impressed with is Mask. And that's the multiracial Americans of Southern California. And they've held on online talks about different issues and they and that's ongoing. They have in-person events there in Southern California, which I'm not in, but it's a great group. It's a great local group that's building community. And now we it's time we gotta translate that community into advocacy. But the building community part has to, is vital as well. So and then on the national level and you have to say that the internet is the key at this at this point and blowing this wide open and and exposing this over and over and over again you know one of the ways is if we were talking about it on something like a multiracial twitter or or you know like it's like a black twitter and obviously, I mean, we i, I know—I find out about things that's going on in the bol- the, the pulse of the African American community, of which I'm, you know, part of my multiracial heritage is, and part of it is that the so-called Black Twitter, for better for worse. You see what's going on. You get opinions. You hear what's the issues. Obviously, for you know, multiracial Twitter, I'm not talking about. X or whatever that's called now but I'm talking about some platform where we can share ideas and debate issues that are important to us and one of them would be this right here why aren't we official and that would get attention and and so you know, there's, there's the other ones that, that I was talking about that are other options as well one of them right now that's in place its Project Race's website ProjectRace.com and their Facebook page they're vital hubs that we can utilize to come together online, and and continue this conversation, and 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 you know exchange ideas and see what's going on with the advocacy, and you know. And then one of the other ways to kind of get things going or maybe get something viral online is the hashtags. Now, the ones I've been using are make multiracial hashtag make multiracial official. That was the main one. And then around Multiracial Heritage Week, it's it's, uh, hashtag Multiracial Heritage Week. And then the other ones I've been doing is hashtag the multiracial identity or hashtag proud to be multiracial or whatever somebody comes up with that people get on to, I'm in. Just let me know. Send me an email or get it going and I'll jump in. On Instagram, on any of these platforms, we need to get a kind of multiracial Twitter quote unquote going and that would be an important way to get the ball rolling online and so and then one of the things that we've that's been that's come up and i looked looked at it it's it's not great but what we're talking about is the president here clearly behind the OMB behind all of this stuff there sits the president whose vision is carried out by these bureaucrats so we could, all, we could get a, a petition going on the White House website and it takes 100,000 signatures to force an answer or some kind of addressing of your issue. And some of them are out there on there, they're really out there, and some of them are nuts, some of them are very legitimate. But if we could bring our community together to force an answer as to why the multiracial people and the multiracial identity is being discriminated against by the United States government and continues to be... We will draw some serious, we could draw some serious internet attention, and internet attention can translate to media attention, which can translate to political pressure. It's, needs to, it's exposing this system of bureaucrats, statisticians, and then the President of the United States deciding whether my and your and, and every multiracial person's identity is legitimate. It matters it will be officially recognized and seen that's a power that these individuals should not have so we need to indict that system and the only way we do that is by getting it out and the only way you can really do that anymore is online i mean so and then the last thing i'll address and we've talked all about it and so we've mentioned it before and she's mentioned a website and, and you know i'm a member of the of the group but project grace itself Susan Graham and that organization are the only ones who have fought for the multiracial identity all the way to the highest halls of power her kid did at eight. We can do this. Now it's time for us to come together and join that fight. Become a member, and we can show a huge membership. Donate if you're able, if you have the means. We don't have the ACLU. We don't have the NAACP. We have Project Race, it's our advocacy group, and they are in place to carry a message all the way to the President of the United States, but we have to show the world, we have to show them, we have to show the President, we have to show the internet that our multiracial identity matters, and it matters to us, it matters to the future, and it matters to our children. So that's, that's where I'm at, that's where we're at. Start your own websites, start your own hashtags, whatever we can get going with advocating 2024 is the time now. We're, we're, we're out of time. So thanks again for joining me and Susan Graham of Project Race for Episode 4 of the Multiracial Identity Podcast. I'm looking forward to 2024. Multiracial Heritage Week is only six months away, and man, we know how fast it goes. It's going to be spring before you know it. And then June 7th through the 14th is Multiracial Heritage Week with Loving Day being the 12th it's our time it's our african-american history month it's our time and it's also going to fall right before this decision is supposed to come out this we've got to come together on this so we'll be talking about all this in later episodes and thanks again for joining me and we'll be back soon